The resurrection happened, right? Yeah, it did. So Jesus was dead. His heart stopped. Rigor mortis probably said, and all that stuff, the physiological occurrences that happen when you die happened to him. He was taken off the cross, put in the tomb. And on Sunday, he wasn't there. He came to life. Okay, this is the foundation of our faith, right? You know that. This is something Christians have been on the same page about. For over 2,000 years. You agree with that? Hopefully you're sitting in there going, yep, I believe in the resurrection. I believe that Jesus rose from the dead. Uh, and that's what we celebrated last week. And why is it important? Well, we hear all the reasons. We know that it's important because it shows us that our sins are forgiven. Amen. It's a great thing. Right? We can have this relationship with God. And we will rise from the dead ourselves. Yes. So that we're just passing through this life and our bodies are going to decay, as some of them are already doing. Um, and someday we will rise from the dead just like Jesus did. These are great truths. And we celebrated them last week. You know, it says in, uh, in Romans 10.9, it says, uh, If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So believing in the resurrection is absolutely part of our salvation. We've got to believe it in our heart, right? These are truths, and they're so important to our faith. But there are other consequences of the resurrection that we often don't talk about, but they're just as true. And I think even more important for our daily living of our lives. You know, we talk about what's good about the resurrection for us, and naturally we do, because there's great good in it. Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, became a living human being for us. He did some magic, some miracles for us. He, he said some really, really cool stuff that shows how to live our lives. He did that for us. He died on the cross for us. He rose from the grave for us. All true. But there's more to it. Because I want you to think about the resurrection, what it really means for just a moment. 
The resurrection validates every word that Jesus said. Right? The resurrection is this historical proof that what Jesus said is true. And let, let me give a great illustration. It's great because I didn't write it. It's from Mark chapter 2. And it's, it's a really quick little thing we're going to go through, and I'm just going to whip through the... Re- you know the story, right? Jesus is in Galilee somewhere in Capernaum. He, he's, he's come home. So this is apparently his house. Well, I don't know. Verse 2, they gathered in such large numbers that there was no room left. Night even outside the door, and he preached the word to them. Some men came bringing to him a paralyzed man carried by all four of them. Since they could not get him uh, to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it and then lowered the mat the man was lying on. Probably a thatched roof, right? Um, When Jesus saw their faith, what does he say to the man? Oh, you're healed. No, he says, son, your sins are forgiven. I mean, you can hear the Pharisees just kind of scratching their ears, going, whoa, 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 whoa. Here's this guy forgiving sins. Only God can do that, right? Verse 8, immediately Jesus knew in his spirit that this was what they were thinking in their hearts. And so he said to them, why are you thinking these things? Which is easier to say to this paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven? Or say, get up, take your mat and walk. But I want you to know, sorry, but I, uh, he got up. Sorry, I'm I'm messing up. But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he says to the man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. He got up, took his mat, and walked out in full view of them all. This amazed everyone, and they praised God, saying, we've never seen anything like this. Did you see that the miracle is what validated the fact that Jesus could forgive sins. I mean, I could go up to you and say, your sins are forgiven and pop you in the head. And you'd fall back and go, oh, my sins are forgiven, great. But I'm just Tim Grieve. I'm not Jesus, right? How do you know that that your sins are forgiven by God? So Jesus' miracle of healing this paralyzed man showed that he had the power to forgive sins. The miracle validated the words that he gave. Does that make sense? It's the same with the resurrection. The resurrection is the, the greatest miracle ever, that this man was dead, he came to life. So that proves to us that what Jesus said is true. And you're all going, okay, yeah, but I already know this. Come on, Jesus, what Jesus said is true. Of course it is. But let's really think of what that means, the fact that what Jesus said is true as validated by the resurrection. Okay. You know, because religious leaders all over the world have said things throughout the centuries, right? Mohammed in the 600 AD, uh, the, the Buddha said amazing stuff, um, the, the Hindu scriptures, the Upanishads, and, and the Bhagavad Gita. Uh, Joseph Smith said some stuff. How do you know these guys, what they say is true? How do you know Jesus isn't just one of those great religious teachers? Well, the way we know is the resurrection, that Jesus was dead. We know what dead means. And he rose from the dead. He came to life. The miracle, the resurrection validated every word he said. So we're going to start looking at the words that Jesus said to see what it means for us every day. Okay? You with me? Okay. You sure? Okay. Um, Let's see some truth that Jesus spoke to us. So we're going to look at Matthew 4. Um, and this is, you know, I've, I've ripped this off a lot of it from Dietrich Bonhoeffer. I've been 
It's always dangerous to read Bonhoeffer, but, you know, here we go. So the first part of this, this is Matthew 4, 17 through 22. Um, and um, I'm going to read the whole passage, and then we'll come back and look uh, pretty much verse by verse. Uh, Matthew 4, 17 says this. From this, that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon and Peter, Simon called Peter, and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. They were in a boat with their father Zebedee, preparing their nets. Jesus called them, and and immediately they left their boat and their father and followed him. What a simple story. So the context here is this is right after John the Baptist had been arrested. Because John the Baptist was preaching the exact same words that Jesus gave in verse, verse 17. From that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Well, we're going to talk about a few of the words here. And the first one that we're going to look at is the word repent. And uh, one of the commentaries I read said that's the worst translation of the original in the, in the Bible. Because repent usually means like, like do penance, like get on your knees and crawl up steps and you know, give something to God. But repent in the original literally means change your mind. Means change your way of thinking, as Bob Dylan said during his Christian period. Change your way of thinking. That's what repent really means in this in the original. It's not just turn; it's change the way you think. You know, we we all fight the mindset of our of the family we grew up in, don't we? We learn to value certain things. We learn to think about people in a certain ways. We 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 learn to think about property and money, and ownership from the family we grew up in. We learned about security, how to stay safe, how to survive from those families. And maybe we weren't taught the Christian way to do it, right? So we're always fighting this default tendency to live our lives the way we think they should be lived. And we got that from the family we grew up in. Anybody feel that? Like there's stuff that happened when you were a kid that you're still dealing with? (laughs) I'm right there. And so that's why Jesus says to us, change your mind, change your way of thinking. And I want to point out that this, the, the word that is translated repent really means change your mind. It's a present tense, which means it's progressive. It's not a once in your lifetime thing. We tend to think of repenting as you got to repent, then you become a Christian. Well, you repent daily. I, I, I just discovered recently that this next Wednesday, is my 50th anniversary of being a Christian. April 27th, 1972, I gave my life to Jesus. And it's taken 50 years to get this far, right? I mean, it has. And it's because God is slowly, through the Holy Spirit, changing my way of thinking, repenting every day. It's a process. I wish it was like joining the Lions Club. You pay your dues and you're in. I got it. That's not it. It's repent daily. Change your way of thinking. Keep on repenting every day. 
You know, some people don't ever change their mind. You know people like that? Maybe you're one of them. Maybe you know somebody. Maybe you're sitting next to one. I don't know. But they're like the sheep from the Monty Python skit. Once they get an idea into their head, there's no shift in it. How do you respond? How do I respond when I'm confronted with something that's true, but I don't like it? That's what Jesus wants us to face by repenting, by changing our way of thinking. Not just randomly, but toward him. We have an object of our thinking. It's Jesus. The resurrection validates the truth that Jesus calls us to keep changing our mind, orienting our minds towards him and the reality of his kingdom in our life. This is the first step in discipleship. It's making that choice. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to repent. I'm going to keep on repenting and following Jesus every day. So the second phrase here is the kingdom of heaven has come near. So we change it and watch the yellow changes. You see that? Yeah. I thought it was cool, but it's just me. So the kingdom of heaven has come near, but actually in the original, it says, repent for the kingdom of the heavens has come near. And I look through all the translations and pretty much all of them have kingdom of heaven in singular. But in the original, it's, 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 it's plural. And I couldn't find a good explanation for it except in my, my good friend Dallas Willard who wrote this book that I'm going to show you at the end. Uh, and he says it's because, and, and think about this for a second, the kingdom of the heavens, you know, what are the heavens? Well, the heavens declare the glory of God. Aren't the heavens the rest of the universe? So this is, Jesus is talking about this kingdom that is created by God where God reigns because the kingdom is a place where the king is sovereign and everyone, everything obeys him. And Jesus says the kingdom of the heavens has come near. Reminds me of that scene, that scene from Independence Day where you first see the big ship come over New York City you know what I'm talking about, right? And it's like, it's so big that the director purposely didn't let you see the whole thing to let you get a sense of how big it is. It's like this alien ship has, a, has, has drawn near, hasn't it? And that's the picture of the kingdom of heaven that is drawn near. And it makes me think of, of C.S. Lewis's space trilogy, which most people probably haven't read, even though it's amazing, Out of the Silent Planet, um, on Peril Land, where that he is strength, right? Where, where the, the story is, the story is of the planet Earth, which was overtaken by a broken angel. And so it stopped communicating with the rest of the universe. Can you believe that? That this planet that we live on is broken because it was taken over by a fallen angel. And it tells the story of the kingdom of heaven infiltrating. And that's what Jesus is saying here. That kingdom is finally here. It's been promised for centuries. And now it's here. That's why we need to change our way of thinking. Because this kingdom that's coming has a different way of living life. So the call to you and the call to me is to change our way of thinking every day. Because there's a kingdom that we belong to that has a different set of rules. A different way to do stuff. So on this planet that we live on, a foreign power has created a default way to think about life. And that's what we need to repent from the way that we learned it. And I had great parents. I really did. They taught me Christian values, but I still learned how to be mean to people. Actually, nobody had to teach me that. I just kind of knew. 
But God's kingdom doesn't operate that way. So the resurrection validates the truth that the kingdom of the universe, the God's kingdom, where God rules, has come near with the result that it still is here. It's the present and future kingdom that we are part of. And when we get together, we are that kingdom that has this different set of rules. And of course, if you want to know more about this kingdom, you read the Gospels. There are parables of the kingdom that Jesus gives to tell us what the kingdom is like. You want to repent, change your mind, and get what the resurrection validated truth about the kingdom. If you want to get that, read what Jesus said. But we have to read it with an open mind. Because if you're like me, you, you were raised in the church, and you heard all the stories about Jesus. And we go on living our life like we're from the planet Earth, because that's where we're from. But not like this otherworldly kingdom is. So... God rules. God is sovereign. This is God's kingdom. Not self-rule. Not the U.S. government rule. Not Democrat rule. Not Republican rule. Not autocratic rule, but God's rule. And we got to really think deeply what that means and how we live our lives. Okay, so that was the call, right? Now here comes the response. As we continue our reading of Matthew 4, Jesus approaches two pairs of fishermen, And the story seems overly simple. I already read it once, but let's go through this part again. Um, And and you read it, you just kind of go, it's got to be missing something. I remember when we were watching this uh, on the, what's the show? The Chosen. Anybody watch The Chosen? It's really good. It's seriously good. I'm not a fan of Christian television, but this thing's really, really good. Um, And... Uh, And you just kind of go, there must be something missing because it's just too simple. It says this, as Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon and Peter, and his Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. That's it. And then going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother John. They were in a boat, and their father Zebedee, preparing the nets, Jesus called them. And immediately they left their boat and their father and followed him. Okay, it's, I don't want to argue from silence here, you know, but there's not a lot of information. As, well, Jesus just says, come follow me, and they, they go. Well, Luke tells us the story that actually he went out on a boat with, with Peter, and that's where, when he called him. So there's a little bit more context there. But here are two things to notice about this. There are two things to notice about this, this response to Jesus' call. The first one, the response was absolute. Right? It wasn't like, well, let me negotiate this. You know, let me, let me bury my brother, or let me, you know, find uh, my, my toothbrush and my toothpaste because, you know, I got to plug it in. It's electric. And I, you know, I, I, I need a suitcase to come with you. I, that's not there. They left their livelihood, right? They left their sense of security, their sense of identity. They're fishermen. They left their family. James and John left their dad standing in the boat holding the nets. What bad children, right? And yet their response was absolute. Jesus had that ability just to say, come follow me, it'll be okay. Um, They left, uh, Luke says in Luke 5.11, he says about um, these four, they left everything 
and followed him. Have I left everything to follow Jesus? Because that's the call. Have I left everything to follow Jesus? Something we got to think about deeply. What does that really mean? Uh, Paul says it this way in Philippians 3. He says, But whatever regains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them, here it says garbage. That's a nice way of putting it. I consider all these things I gained garbage. It's really more dung, the S word, if you will, that I may gain Christ. And right before this in Philippians 3, Paul says, hey, I'm a Jew of Jews. I was circumcised on the eighth day. I was a member of the tribe of Benjamin. I was a Pharisee of Pharisees. I was rocking it. All that stuff is garbage. It's dung compared to knowing Jesus. And that's the call of Jesus on our lives. And our response is to get to that point. Does it take a long time to get there? Yeah. And you see the process is changing your mind daily. Spending time with God to hear what he says to you. To change our minds. To get to that point where we consider all this great stuff we have rubbish. And notice again, this, it's relational. Uh, th- these four disciples are not following some abstract idea or not following some movement, not following some political party. They're following a person. And it's true for us today. We're not following a religion. We're not following a political party. Please know we're following Jesus. That's what it means to be a Christian, a follower of Jesus. So the first thing that you notice is the response was absolute. Second thing is the response was physical. They moved their bodies. The word follow is important. We'll look at that in a minute, but you can't follow Jesus necessarily from a lazy boy. From sitting in front of the TV, that's not the only way you follow Jesus. You've got to get up. You've got to move. There's action involved. You can't follow Jesus only by sitting in a Bible study. As important as the study of God's word is, there's more to it than just that. You can't follow Jesus by only attending church a day a week. That's not what it means to follow Jesus. Following Jesus requires action. So the word translated follow here um, has four meanings according to the the big lexicon that we use. Um, The first one, it means come after, which is like, Okay, I'm going to go off, and you just come after me when you're ready. The second way, way it means is, a uh, second meaning is accompany or go along with. Hey, follow me. Let's go. So it's more immediate. The third one is, and there's a transition to this meaning, follow me like be a disciple, because that's the way education was done. You followed your teacher around in the ancient Near East. You know, you lived with your, your, your teacher. I'm glad we don't do that anymore, because I'd have a whole bunch of kids in my room, middle schoolers, and that's just not scary to have them bring them home. Right, Beth? Not so much. But the third, the fourth way is to obey. To follow Jesus means to obey him. And you know, when I first felt like God wanted me to preach on this, the word obedience came to mind. And notice I didn't talk about obedience till somewhere near the middle, middle-ish end of it. Because the word obedience is like a scary word to us. Right? I mean, our country was founded on not obeying a king. Right? 
we, we want to have our own rules, you know, we the people and all that, it's good stuff. But obedience is a scary thing for most of us because obedience is a word that's used to oppress people. You must obey. Obey this or something will happen to you. Even our parents were that way sometimes. We obeyed because of fear. But this is different. This is a choice we make to be like Jesus, to follow Jesus, to treat people the way he treated them, to love people the way he loved them. And so to me, when Jesus says, follow me, he's saying, obey me. Do what, I, do what I do, do what I say. And following Jesus requires what Dietrich Bonhoeffer calls putting yourself in a place where faith is possible. Let me say that again. Put, we need to put ourselves in a place where faith is possible. Because ultimately, we Americans and those of us in Western society, which I think is all of us, we don't like to have faith in our lives. Because faith is, is, is this this thing that we don't know the outcome of. And we're worried. We want to have everything nailed down. We want to know before we go what's going to happen. We want to protect ourselves at all costs. The problem with having, having to have faith is that we don't know what's going to happen. Peter, Andrew, James, and John left everything. They had to believe that Jesus would take care of them. By following him, they put themselves in this place where faith is possible. They believed that Jesus would be there. They left their comfort zone, to put it in modern terms, right? And we, excuse me, we Americans, we seek the comfort zone, right? We seek it. We live for the comfort zone. We have entire industries to help us get into the comfort zone and stay in the comfort zone. We have industries that will pay us if we step out of the comfort zone for a brief time, so they'll pay us to help us get back in. That's not putting our lives in a place where faith is possible. It's not. We need to change our way of thinking, of our constant seeking to be comfortable, seeking to avoid having to have faith, having to believe God's going to do something. We seek to be comfortable rather than seeking the kingdom of the heavens. And this is one reason, just a little um, a side note about, about the ministry I've had with youth. I love taking kids backpacking. I love it and I hate it at the same time. Because backpacking is not comfortable. It's not. It's not club med. You know, you've you got your stuff on your back. you got boots. You're going to get blisters. You're going to sweat. You're going to smell bad. Everybody on every backpacking trip is going to have a hard moment, at least one. And backpacking is such a great illustration of the Christian life that we're, we're going on this journey together and it's hard and we need each other and we need the trail. We need the guidebook. We need God. Because the Christian life is not supposed to be comfortable. It's not. If we're comfortable, there's probably something wrong because we're not putting ourselves in a place where faith is possible. Let's, let's see a little bit more about what that means. I'm going to talk about two things. There's so many things we could go with. I have two minutes and 55 seconds left. Um, But there are two things I want to go over really quickly about Jesus said. He said so many things, and I want you to read the Gospels. I want you to read especially the Sermon on the Mount. But don't read it like you're in Sunday school. Read it like it's the first time. Because it'll blow you away. You're going to go, how can this work? How in the world can this work in my life? It's an upside-down kingdom, as, as Dallas Willard says. So the first thing we know about Jesus, here are just two resurrection-validated truths that Jesus gives us. The first is love. 
And it says this, and this is uh, yeah, Matthew 5, 43 and following. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes the sun to rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even the pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Yeah, we know we're supposed to love our enemies. I'm going to read a, a quote of, of Bonhoeffer. You've got to listen. I chose not to put it up on there because I want you to hear it. Uh, this is, of course, from The Cost of Discipleship. He says this, This undivided love, this is the love that Jesus is talking about, is love which shows no special favor to those who love us in return. When we love those who love us, our brethren, our nation, our friends, yes, even our own congregation, we are no better than the heathen and the publicans. Such love is ordinary and natural. We can love our kith and kin, our fellow countrymen, and our friends, whether we are Christians or not. And there is no need for Jesus to teach us that. But he takes that kind of love for granted. And in contrast asserts that we must love our enemies. Thus, he shows us what he means by love and the attitude we must display toward it. It is the life described in the Beatitudes, the life of the followers of Jesus, the light which lights the world, the city on the hill, the way of self-renunciation, of utter love, of absolute purity, truthfulness, and meekness. It is unreserved love for our enemies, for the unloving, and the unloved. Love for our religious, political, and personal adversaries. Try that on Facebook. It doesn't say that here, but that's my comment. In every case, it is the love which was fulfilled in the cross of Christ. It's not easy. Love is not all butterflies, rainbows, and unicorns. It's not. That's the easy stuff. That's taken for granted. The love that Jesus tells us to love with is the self-giving, dying-on-the-cross love. The love that is so unusual in this world. It's from the kingdom of the heavens. We've got to change our way of thinking. And the last thing I'm going to talk about, well, I'm out of time, but I'm going to do it anyway. So because I, am not, uh, uh, I don't work for the church, I don't get paid by the church, I'm going to talk about one more thing before I close, and that is tithing. And this is just a little thing. It's a little, another example of something that the scriptures ask us to do. There is no command to give 10% of your income. There is a suggestion in many places that you should bring the full tithe to God, and tithe is 10%. So if you make 10 bucks, you bring a dollar to God, right? That's the idea behind it. And my question, and, and we know that most of us don't tithe just from what, you know, we can calculate what our estimated uh, total income of the church is and what's 10% of that. We're nowhere near that. And we would never have financial issues in any church if people tithed. We, we wouldn't. It just, we wouldn't have to worry about the budget because we would be given so much money that, uh, yeah. And the question is, would we use it correctly? And that's the other issue with tithing. But, um, but my question is this. Is my bank account a place where faith is possible? Is the money in my wallet, can I use it in faith that God will provide for me? Why don't I tithe if I don't? Is it because I don't believe the words of Jesus that he'll take care of me? That he'll clothe me? That he'll feed me? 
Is that the issue or is it something else? But again, that's an example of this resurrection-validated truth that Jesus wants us to live in, to dwell in, to walk in. So um, I'm going to close with what is our mission statement. And there are several places you can go to, in the, and, and this is from, of course, Matthew 28. It's the Great Commission. And this is the life that we are to live. Jesus says this right before he ascends into heaven. He says, Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. That's our mission statement. The resurrection happened, so that's true. That's our job. That's our purpose. That's why God doesn't just save us and take us into heaven. He's got stuff for us to do. Go on this adventure with him. And well, you know, we could talk for hours about this, but my clock says I'm out of time. So here, here are four things that we can do sort of as, uh, as, as, if you want to go deeper, I hope you do, and we'll pray about this in a minute. But there are, some, there are three books and one action that we need to take, and there's so much more than this, but this is all I could come up with last night when I was doing this. The first is going deeper. Read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Okay, you should be reading the Bible, but especially, you want to know what, what Jesus says, you want to know what the life of the disciple is, read the one we're following. Read Christ. Orient your life to Jesus by reading Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The second book, of course, and I have them right here, and these are in the church library. You can also buy them on this new thing called Amazon. You've heard of Amazon? You can actually buy these. And the first one is The Cost of Discipleship. And I've been rereading this because I read it a long time ago. And man, I, I open it up, I just go... That's where I got that idea. There's so much in here that I got. It's, it's not a super easy read. Thankfully, it's in English. It was translated. Because, um, yeah, German would be a little tough. Uh, he was, of course, one of the Flossberg martyrs. It was murdered by Hitler just weeks before he would have been uh, freed at the uh, camp in Flossberg, uh, Germany. And the other one is the, the, the Divine Conspiracy by Dallas Willard. And I've spoken on this all the time. These are uh, places you can go. I don't read a lot of fiction. I'm starting to read more fiction because I probably should. I do read a lot of nonfiction. So if you're not a big nonfiction reader, this is probably easier than this. But you should get started. Please do this. Please. Gospels are most important. And finally, do Jesus' will. Right? When you read what he says, you do it. Right? Being a disciple means take action. Find some unlovable person and love them for Jesus. Let's close in prayer. God, thanks so much for convicting us, for showing us who we are in you that you died on the cross, your son died on the cross and rose from the dead to prove to us what the truth of this world should be. And God, I pray you would orient us to the reality of your kingdom of the heavens that has come and that we are part of. Help us to be faithful disciples in Jesus' name.
Grace and grace alone. 